Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. We're in our second to last session. And this is going to be a great evening. Tonight we'll be covering chapter 9. And it's going to take us through the biblical feast of Purim. This remarkable biblical festival is a two-day feast dedicated to remembering the goodness of God's working through our circumstances to protect his people from extinction. Mordecai wrote a proclamation that the Jews were to celebrate that annual event with eating and rejoicing, giving food and sharing with the poor. He wrote about that in Esther chapter 8 and verse 17. Now, anybody that's done a study of Purim today knows that celebrations in Israel, well, they don't always reflect the biblical themes associated with the event. It's our position that that should serve as a a warning to you. As we start tonight, we want to introduce you to a man named Yaroslav Pelikan, who we love because he's Serbian. And he says the fact that he's a Lutheran. It's okay. He's a Serbian Lutheran. And what Yaroslav said is that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So when tradition is used rightly, it allows the faith of those who went before us to benefit us today. Our children pick up traditions that protect them and prevent them from having to relearn every lesson on their own. Now, the other side of that coin is that those traditions can be devoid of power for the people that did not experience the original event. The cure for this is that the traditions be a guide for every generation to experience the same genuine event and never be used as a defense against an experience from God. Somebody say amen. 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 We have another quote for you guys as we begin this evening. This one is from George Santayana. He's not the one who uh, was a guitar player in the 60s. (laughs) Because you're so smooth. Not that guy. He says, those who do not remember the past are condemned to relive it. The lessons of Purim have repeated throughout history for Israel and for the community of genuine believers. When we neglect the instruction and memory of these kinds of festivals in our own lives, then we have robbed ourselves of their lessons. This leaves every generation vulnerable, especially when their character has degraded so that a Mordecai or an Esther is no longer found among them. The hope would be that we use biblical tradition appropriately in order to shape the character of a generation in advance of the event to ensure that that said generation handles it well. Come on. So let's talk about pillars of the past. Proverbs 22 verse 28 says do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. Proverbs 23, verse 10, Deuteronomy 19, 14, and Deuteronomy 27, verse 17, that you can see on the slide. 
all echo the same sentiment. If you talk with any seriously observant Jew, they will tell you that the calendar is their catechism and that the traditions of their fathers are a protection. Of course, for many, this is just the dead faith of the living generation. But the intent was that it would be the living faith of a previous generation transferred successfully to the new generation. Ooh. Come on, somebody. To the ancient boundary stones is what Peyton just brought up. These ancient boundary stones have often become unnecessary restrictions when they're degraded by the rules of men. But we need to take stock in this room. They are life-giving lessons when the boundary stones were determined by God himself and they were enumerated within his word. Does that make sense? Yeah. The distinction between those two things, what men have made it and what God intended it to be. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were talking about these kinds of boundary stones or property lines, if you will, these property lines refer to more than just geographical markers on a tract of land. There are the boundary lines of a spiritual inheritance, a spiritual inheritance that we leave for our children. In our church, this is why we teach families to develop mezuzah statements and family banners. It is not our intention to trap the next generation into non-biblical traditions, but rather to give them an inheritance that their fathers fought for and secured for them in advance. That is good, isn't it? Look, when you see Proverbs 22, Proverbs 23, Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 27, God's not being redundant. When the word of God shouts something, it's because there's more than what you see on just the surface. I spent most of my ministry tearing down the traditions that came before us because they were wrong. I spent the rest of the ministry trying to establish traditions that are right that will yeah. be subject to the scrutiny of generations following us. In our opinion, biblical Purim is like that. It's outlined in the Bible. It was fought for by a faithful generation. It is the spiritual inheritance that benefits every generation that embraces it with the original faith of the generation that experienced it. When you experience something that it cultivates in you, and that can be unique, the challenge in every generation coming after is not to hang a mezuzah on the wall, not to just have a family banner on the wall, but to actually have it stamped upon their hearts. Amen. Otherwise, it's worthless. One of the things that we want to dial into for a minute is Proverbs 16.33. Because it's relegated to the mundane, the, the category of the absurd, and it's usually only quoted in absurd circumstances. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision. Is from the Lord. One of the most powerful lessons that we hope to transfer to the next generation is that no event in our experience is the product of random chaos. Adonai is in control of the minute details of every event in human interaction. This is one of the many beautiful gems that you ought to be gleaning from Esther because it's a vivid portrayal of that concept. Yep. 
Now this truth was expressed by the Apostle Paul during a time that looked tragic for the nation of Israel. The nation seemed to have missed the will of God, and it was difficult to see a present hope for the family of Israel. Paul addressed the situation in the nation by writing these words in Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, Israel, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, Israel, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, perhaps Paul was thinking of the events in Esther when he wrote these very words. Very often the nation was suffering from the effects of disobedience. They were in captivity of one kind or another. And yet, Adonai was always at work through either overt means or in covert means to bring about his promises to the nation. Man, Justin, this is such a powerful lesson for all believers in all the challenges and trials that each of us face. To be honest, it will always be the case that these challenges are a mixture of both self-induced trauma and also divine providence mixed together. Nevertheless, this statement rings true. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. This is both an admonition to love the Lord, but it's also a promise that our circumstances are never hopeless. Amen. Yeah, if y'all understood what we're saying, you would be amening that. Amen. If you've ever sat in paralysis and thought that your situation was hopeless because you're the one that screwed it up, we want to tell you that's never not been the case. And yet God has worked through it whether you could see it or not. God does not work in all good things. In all things, he works for the good of those that love him. Amen. So in light of what pastor is saying, listen to Acts chapter 1 and verse 23. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots. Oh my goodness. And the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Guys, when we read these words in Acts 1, it's a different experience for us than the actual experience that these men were having in this chapter. You've never thought of Judas as anything other than a betrayer. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. Judas, the guy who betrayed Jesus and the others. No, they knew him first as a friend and as a co-worker spreading the gospel of Christ. They worked with this man on a daily basis. Come on. And they had an experience one-on-one with him. And it was a painful experience to see what he had done. So since you were a child, you've known how the story of Judas would end. So we want you to put yourself in the shoes of the apostles for a minute. They had hopes for him and the calling on his life for years 
prior to his betrayal. We rarely sympathize with the difficult emotional situation that the eleven were in. We rarely consider the courage that it took for Peter to agree with the, the judgment of God and declare Judas left us to go where he belongs. Yeah, statement of faith. Then in the midst of all that, they trusted Adonai enough to simply cast lots for the destiny of the apostolic call. Saints, we are not advocating for casting lots, just so you know. But what we are advocating for is the level of trust in the sovereignty of Adonai that the first generation displays. Yes. Uh, saints, as we keep going, I don't want the gravity of what Peyton just said to be lost on you. We're speaking about a foundational apostle that all of the gospel was going to be set on. How much faith would you have to have that God works in all things to trust that the lots would show it? Yeah. Yeah. Can, consider true. that for a second, because some of you have heard stories about those that defected and stuff. You telling the story is a lot different than the way it felt for Matthew and Wade and I. Spend 10 years working with someone believing that they are a vital part of all that will come in the future and then watch them sell it out yeah. and a newcomer in the church have the audacity to accuse us of something ugly because we say what Peter said they've gone to where they belong see they wrestled with the fact that they loved Judas they wrestled with the fact that they heard Jesus prophesy you 12 will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And yet, they also trusted that God's word did predict a betrayer and Judas fulfilled that. And he must have a, a way to resolve the situation that they were not yet aware of. And they trusted it to the throwing of dice. Yeah. Now, if you engage with that for a minute, it's a much higher view of the sovereignty of God than you possess when you sit back and judge events around you based on the circumstances that you see. We're trying to get you to engage with that just a little bit because it's essential to our story. Yes, that's Not great. just the story of Esther. Our story. Our yes. story. Yes. Yeah. So what the 11 did... It's, it wasn't a gamble. Not only is it not a gamble and is a direction... They're not praying for a specific outcome. Yeah. Mighty God, please let me roll a seven. That's what you do when you're caught at a video poker machine. <laughs> what they were doing is saying, we don't understand all of the variables, but we know that you're at work in this, and we're going to trust that you are directing us in ways that we can't see. Yeah. So the 11 leaned upon a tradition that was already existent. They were not acting in an original fashion. They were imitating Joshua, specifically Joshua 18, verses 5 through 6. You are to divide the land into seven parts. Judah is to remain in its territory on the south and the tribes of Joseph in their territory on the north. After you have written descriptions of the seven parts of the land, bring them here to me, and I will cast lots for you in the presence of the Lord our God. When Israel was being given their inheritance in the land, the specific boundaries were apportioned to each tribe by casting lot. How many tribes were there, saints? Twelve. One of the many things that this displays is the trust in Adonai's sovereignty 
over the minute details of every action in the experience of men. Saints, this is truly profound when you consider that these geographical boundaries were for all generations of the tribes that would come after this. Every single one from that point on. How many of you have bought houses in the last five years? Did you have more than one house you were praying about? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've watched you all go through this. And you were very careful to hear from your wife. I mean God. <laughs> Can you imagine knowing that that would be not for one generation or two or three, but for all time's sake, until the kingdom of God was established on earth, the only tract of land that your family would ever own. And you pulled out dice and said, God will make a better decision than I would. That is not a low view of inspiration of God in the affairs of men. That is not a low view of the leading of God's Holy Spirit. It's actually a very high view. And I almost have never heard it presented that way. Now, again, our point is not that we should be casting lots. I don't trust you that much. (laughs) But rather that we position our hearts to accept a truth. Nothing in all of creation is outside the sovereignty of Adonai. That will affect your daily life. He truly works in all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Time and time again, Israel was in hopeless situations that could be related to self-induced trauma. And yet, the divine providence of God prevailed within their circumstances. There is a particular passage that believers like to hang on the walls in their houses as decoration. Some of your homes have this passage on your wall as a decoration. For most of us, it's become little more than dead traditionalism because you've never experienced the faith of the original generation that produced the statement hanging on your wall. But for some of us, it is the living expression of men that are now gone and it informs us daily. Would you like to know what that scripture is? Yes. It is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, much like Purim and the Judas situation or the casting of lots, reading this without considering that the nation was in extraordinary peril is relatively powerless. You are not experiencing what those men experienced when this was spoken to them. The nation was undergoing the destruction of the temple. And not only that, the slaughter of young and old alike. And not only that, women were being abused and babies were being murdered. And yet, Jeremiah penned the promise of God regarding the plans for his people in the midst of those circumstances. Biblical traditions that involve hanging these verses on our walls, they were always meant to transfer the faith, the faith of those who are now deceased, into a generation of men 
that would need them for their living faith. Guys, nothing is wrong with the concept being transferred. Nothing is wrong with the scripture itself. The only thing wrong is that the transmission requires the character of the original men to be present in the new generation it's being transferred to. So as you examine Purim tonight together with us, and you see the profound eschatological themes within the chapter, they can either be traditionalism, which is the dead faith of the living generation, or by the very Spirit of God at work in you tonight. They can be the living faith of now gone men that is deposited in this generation, in our generation, right here and now. So to prepare for Esther 9, let's review a few slides from last week and the themes associated with them. You'll recognize this one, Banquets and Esther. I want you to pay attention to the right side of the screen and remember these feasts. Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. You remember that each of the banquets in Esther can be related to the biblical feast schedule of Israel. Now reflect on the fact that the Feast of Israel are an eschatological roadmap to the redemption of Israel. So let's start with Passover. Passover is when Israel was saved by the blood of the Lamb and declared a son. Say son. Son! Being brought out of Egypt and into an inheritance prepared for him. Oh, come on. That brings us to unleavened bread, which is when that son, Israel, was directed by the Father to go through the house aided by the menorah and its light, searching for any contaminant that would defile the plan and the purpose of God for him. Then first roots, that's when the son demonstrated faith in the continual provision of Adonai by bringing the first products of this journey before the Lord and displayed trust that more would be provided in every season of his life. First fruits was not the harvest, it was a display of trust that the harvest was still yet to come yeah. by God's hand. Right. Yeah, so Pentecost is when the Son received the life-giving Torah of God. And generations later, the empowerment of the spirit of Adonai that that son, Israel, would need to be successful on the journey. Yeah. It was also among the first of many harvests that the son would need to sustain this new life of journey towards redemption. Then we get to trumpets. Trumpets was an annual reminder to the son, Israel, that full redemption was approaching in his future and that he needed to continually be in a state of repentance and self-examination to prepare for the future that Adonai was leading him in the direction of. As we move forward to the sixth feast, the Day of Atonement was an annual reminder that the Son would indeed be fully redeemed, and it would occur on a singular day in the land of promise. Now this required the Son to face every hardship along the way in the hope of this credited but still future redemption. And then the seventh feast, Tabernacles. Tabernacles was a celebration of the entire journey that leads up to and culminates in redemption. It was also a reminder to the son that Adonai cared for the nations around 
and was using Israel to display his redeeming power to the Gentile nations. Last week, last session, we introduced you to a spiritual power. It's one that has been a physical reality opposing this journey of salvation during every stage of the journey for every single one of God's children. The Jewish people think of Amalek in this way. You guys remember that? Amalek? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should remember this slide. Amalek from the beginning. Here are some things that we learned about this spiritual power last week. The Amalekites have existed figuratively since the time of Abram. Esau married an Amalekite in some sense. The Amalekites are warmongers who attack Israel while they are at rest. Israel has always been forced to respond to the aggression of Amalek. The method of warfare with Amalek has always been a mixture of spiritual symbolism and real physical warfare. It has always required chosen men under the raised standard of God to defeat Amalek. In a spiritual sense, Amalek was first among the nations. Israel was destined to prevail over Amalek. Amalek seeks to destroy Israel and focuses on the wearied and the weak, cowards. Finally, Israel is to erase even the memory of Amalek. And it will take generations to do it, to accomplish this task. So Amalek was seen as trying to defeat the children of God through brute force and also with the subtlety of a temptation to assimilate into a worldly lifestyle that offered an easier path with more carnal rewards and carnal rewards that would be immediate. So this slide introduced us to the Jewish view of Amalek. It says, therefore, the Torah requires a greater level of vigilance to ensure that Amalek does not influence us. Mm. We must constantly be aware and remember the threat posed by the Amalekite ideology and eliminate any member of the nation which attempts to perpetuate it. What, precisely, is the subtle evil of Amalek which is so dangerous? Our sages explain, he knows his master, and yet intentionally rebels against him. Bad. In other words, we are not speaking here of a heretical belief which denies the existence of God. For Amalek knows his master. If Amalek simply denied the existence of God or advocated idol worship, any believing Jew would find the matter easy to reject, right? It is precisely because Amalek, Amalekite philosophy recognizes the existence of God, hence knows his master, that it poses a danger for a Jewish person who may easily become sympathetic to his outlook, eventually leading him to rebel against God. Heaven forbid. <laughs> of course, this is unlikely to happen overnight, for Amalek does not attack by immediately telling a Jew to stop observing it the mitzvot. The threat of Amalek lies in, a more, in the more subtle attempt to disconnect a person's knowledge from his practical observance. Based on the above, we can understand why there are two separate mitzvot to remember and eliminate Amalek. Wow. Now that's a strong slide. Yeah. Yeah. So then, 
Amalek was both an external force that opposed the people of God and an internal force that was always attempting to draw the sons of God off the pathway that leads to full redemption. Jews were commanded to both remember this reality and to eliminate this reality. Amen. Christians, you would do well to accept this tradition as an inheritance that others fought to secure. They fought to secure in their understanding because it will benefit you and will be an inheritance for the generations coming after you. Saints, building on what you just heard, Amalek in Jewish tradition is strongly associated with the sinful nature itself. Those two concepts are linked in their minds. Amalek is seen as following Israel everywhere. Much as your sinful nature is never absent from your circumstances. You can't run away from it. This next slide is going to help develop that point. Wherever the Jew may go, Amalek follows at his heels. We have known him since first we made our appearance on the stage of the world's history. Amalek has driven us from country to country. He has followed us from nation to nation. It has always been the same story. Jews fleeing from oppression, wandering on deserted tracks, hoping for rest, longing for safety. And when they thought they found it at last, like Exodus 17, then came Amalek. Jews run from Amalek. But Amalek is everywhere. Wow. They say the Jew is ubiquitous, but much more so is Amalek. They call us international, but much more so is Amalek, or your sinful nature. Amalek represents both the external opposition to the redemption of God's sons and the internal opposition that all Adonai's sons face. Amalek is like your sinful nature that is present in every situation and is opposing all that you are called to be and called to do. For this reason, Amalek is a significant test. Somebody say significant. Significant. Test for every one of God's people that requires each of us to show sincere biblical faith put into action in order to pass this present test that Amalek is in every situation. Remember the significance of the timing between the decree of annihilation from Esther 3 and the decree which informs you of your right to assemble and your right to defend yourself in Esther 8. We taught on it with this slide. There were two decrees that stood virtually opposed to one another, and they both happened within the sovereignty of the king. Decree number one, the decree of annihilation, day before Passover, issued Nisan 13. Decree number two, the one that gives Israel the right to assemble and protect themselves, occurs in the third month of the year, on the 23rd of Sivan. When you begin to count this, from the 13th of the first month to the 13th of the second month, which is Ayar, is 30 days. From the 13th of Ayar, the second month, to the 13th of Sivan, the third month, is another 30 days. From the 13th of Sivan to the 23rd of Sivan is 10 days. The total is 70 days. This is an example of the way that the faith of believers is tested by Amalek continually. Mm -hmm. 
We first face the very real and present threat of Amalek in our present circumstances. Then we become aware that Adonai has issued another decree, one that is his word. This gives us the ability to assemble and to fight back. The time between the present reality and your own recall of God's word is always a very significant test. That's true. Unfortunately, that test, it doesn't end there. You still have to actually assemble and actually fight. In the book of Esther, that time period between the issuing of the decree that is their life and them actually fighting is nine months. The decree was issued in Savan, and the battle that we're going to read about is in Adar. <coughs> this is like the time that it takes to birth victory. Now, before we move into the birthing of victory tonight, let's take one last opportunity to review the position that we must take before our ultimate victory arrives. You have to take step one and grab hold of your new status. Yeah. You then take step two and make a declaration in conjunction with Messiah. You then take step three and recognize your right to assemble and fight back as empowered by the Spirit. You then take advantage of your right to assemble. Amen. You then take advantage of the assembly and you arm yourselves spiritually. Now, the markers of a people who are doing this are obvious and they are supernatural. Amen. When you see a people that are in joyous celebration while they are facing the present threat of extermination, then you have identified a people of faith. You have identified royal studs with the kind of faith that overcomes the world, the kind of faith that is victory in advance of the battle. Yeah. Somebody say in advance. In advance. Church, you want to hear a life-giving tradition that you can apply to your life right now? Yes. To our text tonight? Yes. You're going to remember that when the decree of annihilation went out, the whole city was bewildered. But when the decree of assembly and defense went out, that same city exploded with joy. Look at these verses on the slide. So Esther 3.15, spurred on by the king's command, the courtiers went out, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Then in Esther chapter 8, verse 15, Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Guys, the point here that you cannot miss is that that joyous celebration was their position before they went into the battle. Before they went into the battle, they had a joyous celebration. They displayed faith in the outcome of the battle nine months before the actual victory was birthed. Christians, this is a life-giving tradition that you will want to take on for yourself. And then, guess what we're going to do with it? We're going to pass it on as an inheritance to the generation that's coming out. 
Juan, where are you tonight? Stand up, my brother, and pray for us as we begin to read our chapter. Tonight, in order to appreciate the flow of events, we're going to pick up in Esther chapter 8 and verse 15. We're going to start there, and then we're going to transition and continue reading into 9 verse 1, which is almost nine months later, by the way. And we're going to read all the way through the chapter, and Miss Jennifer is going to read for us tonight. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every providence and every city wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews. With feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, in the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the providences of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the providences, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace his reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down their enemies with the sword, yep. killing and destroying them, yep. and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspath, Koratha, Adaliah, Aridatha, Parshmata, Arisai, Aridai, and Vashta, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king the same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and 10 and ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's providences? Now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. No. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's providences also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. 
They killed 75,000 of them, and they did not lay their hands on their plunder, on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as a time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrows were turned into joy and their mourning into the day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and give presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue to celebrate they had, been, they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written for them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto, onto his own head, yeah. and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pure, because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had, what had happened to them. The Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they had, <coughs> that they, sorry, custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at that appointed time. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by their family and in every providence in every city. And these days of Purim would never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerned, concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, word of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim. <coughs> and at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and they established themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting <coughs> and limitations, Esther decreed, confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in these records. Hey! <laughs> if Miss Jennifer thought that that chapter was difficult to read, imagine the 11 months of living through the events, not knowing how they would go for you. So as Justin gets ready to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 9, you'll notice there's 32 <laughs> verses that's a little bit longer than the last couple of chapters that we've studied. But I promise you, we have old and new treasures tonight, and you're going to want to stay engaged till the very, very last word that is spoken tonight. Let's pick up in verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now, the 
tables were turned, and the Jews, the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. That's right. So as you engage with this verse, it's necessary to remember that nine months have occurred between the issuing of the life-giving decree and the day on which the event had occurred. All too often, charismatics want an instant deliverance, but biblical faith is rarely the product of a spontaneous moment. Oh, Just ask any man, any pastor in this church who has been walking in the kingdom for a couple years. It is almost always displayed <coughs> over great lengths of time. Yeah. But it's on that subject we want to begin with you in Deuteronomy 7, verse 22 to 23. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at once, or the wild animals will multiply all around you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, throwing them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Saints, while a battle can be decisively won in a day, the battles of faith are never limited to one day alone. It's just not how it works. There is the day that you get to hear, you hear a negative decree. There is the day that you recall the decree of faith. Both of those things happen. Then there's the day that you enact the decree of faith. Yeah. You remember that nine-month waiting time yeah. in Esther? Yeah. And of course, there are all of those days in between the decree of faith and the decree that you're now enacting, yeah. where you have to stand in faith, stand in belief for the results of what you know God will produce. Might be why Paul, when talking with Timothy, described it as the agonizing battle yeah. of faith. I want to read to you from Zechariah 4, beginning in verse 7. What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it! God bless it! Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now I'm not going to take you through the 20-year process that we just read about in four verses. But I will say that when a man embarks on the faith decree, it is always a small beginning, and the Amalek within the man despises the small beginning. The Bible of faith requires us to maintain and to grow the resolve of our faith all the way to the completion of its aim. Our battle with Amalek is not the doubt of a singular moment, but the discouragement that we face in the slow process that breeds the growing doubts in our hearts. Listen to Matthew 21, verse 21. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, well, we can end the night right there. (laughs) Not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If 
you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now, when Jesus speaks of faith that will move mountains, he was not teaching us to have a singular, fantastic moment that brings instant results. His aim was to eliminate the doubting voice of Amalek in our hearts that entices us to give up before Adonai's goal is achieved. Everything is possible for the man who believes. But for how long must you believe? Well, the answer is until you see the aim of your father achieved. I hope your silence is because it's stinging the Amalek within your heart. The number one thing that this church must cultivate is not more biblical knowledge. You've already gathered that. It's the staying power to complete what God has said and do it without wavering through unbelief. Church, tonight we're talking about the kind of faith that is able to turn the tables. The kind of faith that reverses the situation. The kind of faith that flips the script on its head. Guys, it occurs over time. And the biggest opposition is not external. No, it's the internal Amalek within your own sinful nature that is the biggest opposition to this kind of faith. Genesis 4-7 says, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Christian, we often struggle with many external adversaries, but we always struggle with our own internal adversary, don't we? We're in a battle to see who will master who. You'll, You'll either master your sinful nature with the help of Adonai and his power at work in you, or you will be mastered by your sinful nature. So look at this slide. It's titled Yetzirah and Yetzertov. Mordecai Assassin. That's a great name, isn't it? In his we'll call him Mordecai the Assassin. Yeah, Mordecai the Assassin. In his sefer, Trister, do you want to help me out with that? Devar Beatov. Yes. In the section called Ramazi Megillah. Thank you to our Hebrew scholar explains that Haman symbolizes the Yetzirah, or evil inclination, and his ten sons allude to his ten bad character traits. Their death, brought about by Mordecai and Esther, represents the nullification of such evil traits by being overpowered by the Yetzirah, the good inclination. The rabbinical commentary is insightful and is a tradition that could be life-giving if we embrace it with the character of the men who are fighting the good fight. So think about it. The battle that we are going to read about tonight is inspired by Haman, who is now both condemned and dead. Yet, he is still exerting influence over the living, and they will be condemned as well. Grab that for a minute. Haman is both condemned and... Dead, And people are still acting under his influence. If you cannot quite grasp that, think about your own life. Because Satan is both condemned and cast down. 
And he's still exerting influence over you. But he does it through your Yetzirah, wow. your evil inclination. The Bible not only acknowledges this fact, but it shows us what to do. Galatians 6, 7-10. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Well, the Bible acknowledges this reality, and it implores us to sow in the right direction. We're going to move to verse 2. But each of you should consider that you have an obligation to not only consider Haman dead, but also for Haman to be dead in your life. For his present influence to pass away in our lives. Saints, this happens when the world is crucified to you and you to the world at large. Just as Galatians 6 goes on to say in verse 14. Brother Linton, help us out. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. Now, y'all seem very sleepy tonight. So I want to help you. It's impossible to miss the phrase. No one could stand against them. This is a quite obvious allusion to the generations before this present generation we're reading about and the battles that they faced and won. Come on. Look at Joshua. It'll be in the first chapter, in the fifth verse. It might be one hanging on your wall. <laughs> no one will be able to stand against you yeah. Yeah. all the days of your life. Oh, yeah. As I was with Moses, uh-huh. so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong yeah. and courageous because you will lead these people To inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Rock, Kazakh, Bayamas. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. That you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, somebody say then, Then. you will be prosperous and successful. Now you should, number one, hear the generations there. The ones before Moses, then Moses, then Joshua, and then those coming after him. It's obvious that the author is recalling the formula of Moses' success. He's recalling the formula of Joshua's success and the formula for the success of every believer in every generation. When we adhere to the life-giving decree and do it in faith, then and only then are we a match for our adversary. Come on, that's a good word. 
You know what's better than that, though? In those kind of circumstances, our adversary is not nearly a match for us. Now, on a historical note about this passage, the Gentiles are said to be afraid of the Jews. This is because the Gentiles now risk losing their lives and the possessions that their surviving family members will need after they are gone, if you know what I mean. Now, Mordecai's decree was written in parallel to the decree of Haman. Watch this. In Esther 3, 13 through 14, it says dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces in order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day. The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Now look how the tables have turned in Esther 8, 10, 11, and 13. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers, who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them, and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So check this out. This is what the king authorized in parallel decrees. But guess what? There is a major plot twist coming that is as beautiful as it is instructive. Do you want to see it? Let's pick up in verse 3. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Amen. They helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Guys, this has actually been a repeating pattern since the patriarchal times. Consider that similarity with what we read in Genesis 31, verse 42. We're going to be reading from the ESV. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So the spirit of Amalek has reared its head in situations that involved obvious enemies. But it has also reared its ugly head within the family of God and that many times. Laban was surely under the influence of an Amalek spirit when he attempted to defraud Jacob of his wages. But guess what happened? The fear of Isaac prevented Laban from going as far as his evil inclination wanted to go. Guys, there's often 
a battle between these two forces in the external world. But there is always a battle between them in the internal world of the heart and of the mind. Are y'all hearing this tonight? Yeah. Yeah. So we prefer to focus on the external. But the greater battle has always been internal. You feel us on that tonight? Yes. When you're thinking of the rising government of Mordecai, you should consider this prophecy from Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Come on. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Each of us must focus on the increase of Messiah's government within us as the prerequisite for his government being established in the external world around us. Come on. You know, it's been noted that God judges the external by looking at the internal. While man tends to look at the external as a representative of the internal. If you want to see the kingdom come to the world around you, then his kingdom must first increase within you. Amen. Wait, there's two amens for that? What's wrong with y'all? Amen. Mordecai was, was prominent in the palace. His reputation had spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. Man, that's such a beautiful passage. The man who was dedicated to the welfare of the people around him is growing more and more powerful. The author of Esther chose those words carefully, intentionally, and specifically because they're reminiscent of two kings of Judah. The first that we want to look at is David in 1 Chronicles 11, 7-9. David then took up residence in the fortress, and it was called the city of David. He built up the city around it, from the terraces to the surrounding wall, while Joab restored the rest of the city. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. As you see the similarities, David was a great king in Israel because he honored Adonai by showing bold faith. He defeated enemies of Israel and unified the people into faithful action. The same phrase, more and more powerful, is used of Mordecai intentionally to draw the reader's mind back to similarities with David the king. The phrase more and more powerful is fairly rare in the Bible. But every man that it's said of had the kingdom growing in him internally before you could see it around them externally. 2 Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 12. Jehoshaphat became more and more powerful. He built forts and store cities in Judah and had a large supplies in the city of Judah. He also kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. The same phrase is used to draw the reader back to Jehoshaphat, who encouraged the teaching of the law and organized Israel into unified fighting groups. These are the only two times that this phrase is used in the Tanakh. And both times, they are men from the southern tribes that had an internal work going on that affected the whole kingdom. Yeah. Come on. 
The light in which Mordecai is portrayed was meant to see him like one of the great kings of Israel or Judah. Now the Newer Testament writers do this with Saul, also called Paul of Tarsus, because he was bringing the people of Israel into victory over their spiritual enemies under Messiah. All right, now if you want to become more and more powerful, listen to this verse. If not, just tune me out for a second. All right? If you tune him out, I'm coming after you. (laughs) Acts 9.22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the point is that some victories are obvious and external, kind of like what you're seeing in Paul here, while other victories are inconspicuous and internal. Well, the only way that you can become more and more powerful is to win both kinds of battles. You can't win external battles and lose the internal and become more and more powerful in the kingdom. The battle may be between you and an obvious enemy, or it may be between you and another believer, both struggling internally against your own evil inclinations. But to become more and more powerful, you have to win both kinds of battles. You can't just win one. Who is the strongest man in all of the Tanakh? Except he didn't win the internal battles. So it is never said of him he became more and more powerful. But men like David, Jehoshaphat, and Mordecai were more and more powerful because the winning they were doing on the inside showed up on the outside and spread to the people of God all around them. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword and killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Man, it's so easy just to read these verses with a lackadaisical attitude. Oh, oh, they killed them. Oh, it's so great. They got the victory. No, that's not what we're going to do tonight, though. Guys, that attitude comes from already knowing the outcome. Remember, though, that the Jews are a tiny minority within this huge kingdom of Persia at this time. The faith that they are displaying in their actions is a little bit like Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. I'm going to read 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 22. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from oh, Kabzeel, yeah. who performed great exploits. Mm. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. It is likely that no day would be a convenient day to go down into a snowy pit and kill a lion. <laughs> like, oh, I was thinking about it today, and you know, today of all days is a good day for me to go down there and face that lion. It's snowing, the lion's down there, it's a good opportunity. No. Just like there's no convenient day to do that, there's also no convenient day for a genocide either. There's no convenient day to face the possibility of every Gentile in Persia wanting to attack you, kill you, kill your family, and steal the plunder. Both situations 
required men to see the day as divinely Amen. orchestrated for a faith-filled victory. They had their sights set in faith, saying, it might not be an ideal day, but this is an opportunity for me to say, for me to see faith in action. Amen. God will empower me for any day. If it's called today, then it's going to be today, and I'm going to show my faith in God through it. Amen. Believing the decrees of the king will change the way that you see obstacles. It will transform them into opportunities to display your faith, no matter what day today might be. Amen. Hey, what was the first battle that Benaiah faced that day? It wasn't with an Egyptian, and it wasn't with a lion. It was the internal decision that says, God will grant me victory, although the circumstances aren't ideal. When we start winning these internal victories, they will show up in the external world all around us. Yes. Yes. That's good. Verses 6 through 9. In the citadel of Susa, yes. the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Okay. They also killed Marshadatha, yeah. Thousand, yeah. Aspatha, Borath, Padalia, Aridatha, Marshmata, Arasai, Adarai, Eridai. So the dynamic translation of the NIV is dramatically cleaned up to avoid what could be seen as unnecessary repetition of the word and. But as you might have guessed, this is never wise when dealing with God's word, in which every syllable is breathed by Adonai himself. And we're going to look at the ESV and you're going to see what we're talking about. Esther 9, 6 through 9 reads this way. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Erisai, and Eridai, and Thizatha. Now, why did the NIV eliminate? Ten ands. Because they don't think it's necessary for you to understand what's going on. The commas separate them and you understand it intuitively, right? Wrong! Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) What is occurring here is unique. Guys, this, what is happening in Hebrew in this moment is something that we want to show you, and we have an authoritative linguist on a slide that is going to discuss the construction and a alternative translation for you. You ready? So in the Hebrew text, these are listed in a remarkable way. And a column with the Hebrew word self is linked with each one. So you're going to see this in a little while later in the teaching, but they're in a column, and self is linked to each one of these names. So the Hebrew word here on the screen is et. The use of et, the pronoun, can at once, if required, be placed in a position of emphasis. It also sometimes enables the reflexive sense to be expressed with verbs of motions. Very rare, and it's denoting a goal. So this next symbol that you see is the tov. Introducing the tov, the predicate, or postus, when it forms with the preceding word a pair. Whether or a parallel or opposed idea, the tov is used very freely and widely in Hebrew. 
but also with much delicacy to express relations and shades of meaning which Western languages would use to indicate by distinct particles. As what you need to understand from this slide, since it's unlikely that you followed most of that, like me. <laughs> the point is that every time you read the word and in English, in the ESV, in this passage it is possible that it could be read as self in a reflexive way. Come on. This has led informed scholars to examine the list as if it were a ramez about your sinful nature wow. or about self in each indication. So this next slide is how Chuck Missler enumerated his thoughts on this specific passage. Every time you see the word and, you would have to ask yourself whether it was actually the word self. So, Porshendatha, <laughs> which Chuck says means curious, followed by the word and or self. This might refer to the busybody nature of a believer. Dalphon, the weeping self, your tendency towards self-pity. Aspatha, your assembled self, your self-mobilized self-sufficiency. Paratha, your generous self, that spin-thriftiness, impulsive self that tends towards indulgence in the things that you want. Adalia, the weak self. The part of you that is self-conscious and feels inferior in every position. Eridatha, the strong self. That's the assertiveness, the insistence upon one's own way. Parmashta, preeminent self. This is your ambition, your desire for preeminence over others. Erisai, the bold self that is not very prudent in the way that it acts. Eridai, the dignified self, your pride, your haughtiness, your sense of superiority. Vaisatha, <laughs> Vaisatha apparently means pure. This is the worst of all. This is your own tendency towards self-righteousness. Now, this is certainly a unique way to read the text. But it's not unusual. Rabbinic commentaries are full of this kind of interpretation of these verses on the Ten Sons. We're not attempting in any way to make or validate the linguistic argument. We're familiarizing you with it. Just because we want to acknowledge that centuries of Hebrew-speaking people have seen these verses as a hint that point to a very internal battle within people that always shows up in external ways eventually. Yeah. So here's an example of a rabbi speaking on this subject. The ten sons of Haman in Jewish sources. Parshendasha, Parshendatha, is the Yetzer Hara that distances a person from the Torah. Dalphon, it makes a person who is performing a mitzvah do it with wrong intentions. Aspasa, the Yetzer Hara, gives a person the desire to gather piles of money so that he will have no time for Torah stu study and performing the mitzvahs. Parasa, the Yetzer Hara, makes a person desire to gaze at uncovered women 
Adalaya, feelings of haughtiness and arrogance. Aridasa, the Yetzer Hara, appears to a person praying like a lion to distract him. Parmashta, it rips apart the strong connection that exists between fellow Jews. Arasai, it continually poisons a person with the venom of the snake. Aradai, the evil that subjugates a righteous person with suffering and worries about his livelihood. And Vaisasa, the bitterness of the olive, symbolizing bitter and strong judgment. Now there's something neat here. Chuck Missler saw one thing. You see the rabbi interpreting slightly different, but more the same. You can imagine that these names are a little bit like a mirror. It really depends on how the sinful nature pulls at you personally. And that is what you will see in the list of Persian names. Our point remains the same, though. Your largest battle with the spirit of Amalek pulling at your sinful nature is internal as much as any external challenge that you face. That's so true. So as we're talking about the reading of these names, which represent your own sinful nature, our own sinful natures, the synagogues have a rather humorous but also impacting practice regarding this. Look at this slide with us. The ten sons of Haman in one breath. Listen to this. This is from the U.S. 16b, 10 through 12. Tractate in the Talmud. It's in the Talmud. The verse states, And in Shushan, the capital, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. And Parshandatha, and it goes through the names, and then it finishes. And Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, from Esther 9, 6 through 10. <laughs> Rav Ada from Jaffa said, When reading the Megillah, the names of the ten sons of Haman and the word ten must be said in one <coughs> breath. <laughs> what is the reason for this? It is that their souls all departed together. Oh, As, let breath. us give you a little bit of insight into this practice. It feels like an impossibility, right? These names are already hard enough to pronounce for us. But to... And go through them all in one breath, it seems almost impossible. Wow. In one breath, though, we all confess and declare our own sinful nature to be dead. Amen. Don't we? Man, that, that guy is dead. He's gone. He's no longer living. But in the practice of carrying that out, it turns out to be a little bit difficult, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. This is a battle that we will be engaged in right up to and until the last trumpet sounded. At that point, the battle will be won, though, and it'll be won in a single breath, in a single Come on, somebody! Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, picking up in verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Come on. Nor does the perishable inherit the the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash. In a flash, in a flash like a breath. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. 
and we will be changed. Amen. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. Amen. And the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable. And the, and the mortal with immortality. Then the, say, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Amen. So we are guaranteed victory in the end. But yeah. it is incumbent upon us to celebrate joyously before that day. Yeah. Amen. Then go out and actually engage in physical combat. Engage in the battle. We do this knowing that the ultimate victory will be won until our Mordecai, the Christ, appears and the battle is won. Oh, come on. Let's practice it right now. Why don't you stand to your feet and celebrate the joyous victory that awaits Of the prosperity gospel 
is corrupted by greed. We only have to, to desire to defeat Amalek in one sense, but the bigger battle is that we also must defeat the desires of Amalek that pull us in unseen ways. You know, the Lord's own brother had something to say about this in the close of his letter. This is Jude 22 through 25. Come on now. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy. Mixed with fear. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Hating even the external stained by the internal corruption. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Girl, did you see that dress that Ashley Judd was wearing? I hope to get me one like that. Where is the hatred for the clothing that is stained by the corrupted flesh? Listen, next time you hear some Amalekite <coughs> donkey oh. standing in a pulpit and asking you, well, don't you want that drug dealer's car? No. 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 And going on to insist that the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous? Well, remember that the clothing stained by corrupted flesh has the ability to make a son of God fall. Yeah. It's not the external. It's the internal that has that ability. You see, we have the right to the plunder. We have the right. But we choose to live without it because we are focused on the larger Amen. battle. Yeah. The one that is internal as well as external. Come on, church. Amen. That's something you got to get hold of. of the scepter being extended. There's no description of her having to receive a pardon. Yeah. Guys, this is because the king is actually concerned about her and the state of the battle. Just as your king is concerned for you and the state of the battle in you as well. Yeah. Notice Xerxes' concern for the state of the battle. He asks her, what is your petition? What is the state of things? And then he promises to help her. Then he asks, what is your request? And he declares, it will be granted. Guys, it's like saying, is there anything you need? I will give you all that you ask in the battle that you're having. Xerxes is just like Adonai. The king sees the defeat of the sinful nature. It's happening. It's happening in our lives. 
and he will extend the time needed to accomplish all power necessary for victory over it. Adonai will do the same for a people who want nothing from the world but victory over this desert. Verse 13. If it pleases the king, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So Esther's concise, say concise. Concise. Esther's concise two-part answer reflects the king just like it did in previous chapters. But tonight, let's focus on what she asked for. She wanted more time. She didn't ask for more resources, and she certainly didn't ask for better circumstances. But asked for more time. She wanted the sons of Haman hung on the cross for the whole world to see. Come on. Brothers and sisters, these should be our two greatest requests before the king. Amen. More time and to see our sins crucified. Notice that she also uses the phrase, this day's edict tomorrow also. This is because these kinds of victories must be multiplied. Oh, yeah. It is also because it is a picture of the generational battle with the spirit of Amalek that is never won all at once, but is a fight of faith until the very last day. Are you catching that? We're not winning in one day, but a lifelong battle. However, the bodies on the cross were a sign to all generations that the battle could be won. Yes. And it can be done. And how much are our victories? Just a sign and symbol for the generation to see that it can be done. Yes. Perhaps this is like us revisiting the cross ourselves daily. I'll get verse 14. Yeah. <laughs> what is wrong with y'all? This is like us visiting the cross daily. Amen. A sign that the battle can be won if you want nothing from this world. And they hang the ten sons of Haman. Oh, saints, why on earth do you hang bodies that are already dead? <laughs> They're creating a sign. Look, we want to give you a remez, a little hint at what is happening with the Etzerah here. There is power when we are putting to death the sinful nature, but then not burying it in private. Hanging it up for the world to see and say, this was in my kingdom, but now it is crucified with Christ. Thanks. What do you think we're trying to do for you when we're preaching on the Etzerah, preaching on the sinful nature? Do you think we're not at war with it? We're trying to hang it so that you can learn to win. They displayed their sinful nature, what was in the kingdom on the cross for all to see. This was a sign for the following generations who could look and see, yeah, we can do it again. We can crucify this Yetzirah. It also warned about the ever-present nature of temptation that must be crucified in every generation. Not just the enemies themselves, but what the ten traits represented. A more shocking conclusion that can be drawn from this. When you're considering this kind of passage, that if Haman's sons followed in his footsteps to a cross, how much more the sons of God in this oh, house follow the sons? Yeah. Yeah. See, his sons 
we're exactly like him, and we are called to another, another kind of crucifixion that is displaying his work inside of us. Now y'all are starting to shake off your crawfish boil. Pick up in verse 15. Jews and Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Come on, this is the second time the text says they did not lay their hands on the plunder. What a great reminder to every believer to avoid the contaminating effects of plunder stained by the spirit of Amalek. We need to be a generation like this one. We've had many soul-like Christians that were compromised in their devotion because they secretly wanted all of the goods of Amalek. However, Adonai raised up a generation that could not be bribed, could not be bought, and would not compromise. When it comes to the sinful nature, you have to have an attitude that says, I will not take a prisoner. I will kill and destroy this. You have to have an attitude that says, it's not that the plunder couldn't be given to me, but like my father Abraham, I don't want anything the Sodomites have. That is the attitude that we have to proceed in. It means when you round a corner by a car dealership, you cannot get too fascinated with the latest Suburban that has come out. What we want is victory over the sinful nature. You know, that kind of reminds me of a passage in 2 Samuel, chapter 3, verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife, Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paul Teal, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharim. Wussy boy. Then Abner said to him, Go back home! And so he went back. Listen, Christian, when you have won the battle over the enemy, when your king is calling you back to his side, when you are about to be married to the king again, you must look at Paul Teal. You must look at the sinful nature that's dragging behind you, and you must yell, Go back home! This is what our attitude needs to be in regard to the accumulation of Amalek's goods. Our lives do not consist of the abundance of our possessions. No, our lives consist of the abundance of crucifixions on the cross and glorifying the king in the meanwhile. Which leads us to verse 16. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who are in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. Did not lay their hands on the plunder. Can you say trifecta in this chapter? This is the third time that this statement is being explicitly said. They didn't lay their hands on the plunder. You guys getting the point yet? We can't be bribed. We can't be bought. We cannot be compromised into the plunder of the world. 
One kind of victory is over the external enemy. The other kind of victory is over the internal desire for the things of this world. It's time to put that on the crucifixion stake. Come on. As the victory that Mordecai had in his repentance. The victory that we saw in Esther's boldness. Guys, those victories are now manifesting themselves as faith being displayed in the actions of the people around them. The victories that Esther and Mordecai had are manifesting in the people themselves. And the people will not accept anything less than victory. And they want nothing from the world as they're gaining that victory. Verse 17. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. So this happened on the 13th day, and on the 14th day, they rested. It should not escape your notice that the provinces, say provinces, provinces, had only one day of war and then enjoyed a Sabbath. Because this was not the situation in the capital city. And this fact will illuminate our major theme yet again in the next verse. Verse 18. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th. And then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. St. Susa was the capital. And they had two days of war. Let's put it another way. Twice as much battle as in the provinces. Then it was followed by a Sabbath. Saints, this is out to speak to you about the greater battle that is in the capital of your own heart for complete victory. Complete victory over the desires of Amalek. Not just the deeds, but the wants that it has in the capital of who you are. Saints, when you win this battle in the capital, then it is exponentially easier to win battles in the provinces of your life. Amen. Those extremist areas, those areas off to the side, when you no longer want what is wrong, Because you're being internally changed. So we're going to move to verse 19 and dramatically pick up our pace because you ought to be getting the point by now. It's taken us an hour and 40 minutes to wake you up. And if you don't engage with us, we will preach for two hours and 40 more minutes. Verse 19. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th on the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting. A day for giving presents to each other. It doesn't matter whether it is the 14th or the 15th. Anytime you reverse the situation and you gain the upper hand over your enemy, it's time to celebrate! Say it with us, church. Today! Today! Or tomorrow! Or tomorrow! (laughs) One of them will be my celebration! because I trust the decree of the king and I want nothing from Amalek. Keep going, brother. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far. So this reminds us of Jesus using Luke to record the events of Acts. This way, you would know about the great victories that have been achieved in the previous generations and be inspired by them. It is even in phrasing that is similar to the words Peter spoke on Pentecost. This is Acts 2:38 through 39. Peter replied, "Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children 
And for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Church, whether you are near or far off tonight, this is a rallying cry. We want nothing from Amalek except internal and external victory over him. We will achieve this by the decree of the king issued on Pentecost, which is outlined in his Torah and empowered by his spirit working through us as we fight. Let's pick up in verse 21. To have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrows was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. Guys, every year is a new year, with new manifestations of our enemy Amalek, but also new victories over that same This feast was annual because we're in a cycle, and we need cyclical reminders in order to fight and win. Relief and sorrow was turned to joy. Guys, winning the battle in your capital will result in victory in the province. And what happens then? Sorrow turns into joy. This is what we learned in passages like Isaiah 35, verses 8 through 10. It says, joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the passage about the highway. Every time you are faced with external Amalek, you need to remind yourself that internal Amalek is just as dangerous. And then you make a decision to take the highway that wants nothing from this world except victory over it. Amen. Your sorrow will quickly be replaced by joy and you will have a reward in the resurrection. Yeah. So Isaiah 51 11 echoes the same thing. It says gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sigh will flee away. You have been ransomed by the Lord and that is reward enough. You have no need for Amalek's stuff. Yeah! Your tears of want today will become gladness and joy tomorrow because yeah. your reward is in the resurrection. Yeah. Come on, Jeremiah 31, 12 through 13 echoes the same. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. Goes on to say, they will sorrow no more. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Friends, family, this is the experience of the righteous when we are engaged in this kind of fight. To be clear, this bounty is the bounty that the Lord provides, and it comes only from His hands, and it is to be used for His work. We don't need the stuff of the world. We don't need the wealth of the world. We need what God provides. Free yourselves of all other attachments. On another note, we were divided as a team. We're going to present you two awesome options and we'll let you decide. The text says that they gave gifts to one another and then to the poor. So part of our team thought that they gave gifts to one another, meaning Israelite to Israelite. Then they gave gifts to the poor. Some think that the poor refers to the poor Gentiles who now have dead family members killed at the hands of Jews. This would mean that Israel showed kindness and concern for the families of their enemies. 
That's an awesome option. Others on the team think that the poor in the verse refers to the poor, timid souls who were unable to participate in the battle because they were outside the Persian Empire. Then the gifts would be an encouragement. You guys get in on the next contest that the people of God face. In either case, the picture is beautiful, and it should be imitated. Let's do verse 23. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. All right. We could not point it out enough, so we're going to do it again. The celebration started nine months earlier and preceded the actual battle. The celebration in the provinces was on the 14th because their battle ended sooner. The celebration in the capital was on the 15th because their battle was longer. The whole group ended up celebrating each other's victories on both days annually. Oh, man, we need these annual reminders because this is not the last battle they will face or that we will face. Celebrating preceded this battle and celebrations will precede the future battle. This is a cycle in our lives. That is the lie for their reign, for their ruin and destruction. Oh, we're talking about Haman again. But just like we noted earlier, he died. He's dead. But among the Gentiles, still the influence of Haman is still occurring. But he's condemned and he's a dead man. Guys, this is so much like Satan already cast down. And yet men are working under his influence and under their own condemnation and death. Let's go to verse 25. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme of Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head. Oh, come on. And that he had he and his sons should be hanged on gallows. Guys, all the works of the flesh come back on your own head. All the sons of Belial will be executed. We're living in the time between the decree and the execution of the external and internal enemy that is the spirit of Amalek. We need to reflect on the attitudes of the people prior to the completion of the event. They celebrated because in faith the outcome was a foregone conclusion. It's only by God's sovereign intervention Mordecai is now in a position of authority. The very throne that had once condemned the Jews is now protecting the Jews. The very throne of God also protects us today. Listen to Romans 8, 31-39. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Nobody! It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Jesus Christ who died. More than that, who was raised to life? Is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, 
We face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll remember that you were silent after reading that. This verse is perfect in its expression, yet dull through its time and familiarity. Perhaps if the struggle was engaged in more seriously, these kind of statements would be more seriously encouraging. Make sure that you are not among the poor who did not go to battle for these things. Good word. But if you are, we're still sending you gifts, and we're doing it right now. Yeah. Verse 26. Therefore, these days were called Corinthians from the word poor. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. Oh, come on. This is like the Apostle John's first epistle. Yeah. Because of what they had seen. Picking up in 1 John 1, 1. That which from the beginning, which we have heard, yeah. which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. That's right. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and what we have heard. So that you, somebody say, you. So that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Amen. Saints, if it is not obvious to you yet, we want you to win. Amen. We want you to win externally and internally. We are winning and we are fighting for it and trying to pull you along with us. This method, which is the personal experience of victory, is how we teach the generations. That's how we see the glory rest on them. We cannot teach them about battles we didn't participate in. You have to be able to show them your scars and show them how God delivered you. They're your trophies. you got to teach them to win. And to do that, you got to be in the Bible and you have to win. Hey, what is verse 27? The Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who would join them should, should without fail observe these two days every year. In the way prescribed and at the time appointed. Now, it's not normally a good thing to take it upon yourselves to establish something. But when you are a bride reflecting your husband, this is beautiful. This is the body of Messiah taking it upon themselves to imitate the victory of Messiah. And we do it in every generation and we celebrate it annually so that every generation... Coming after us will do it. Hey, what's verse 28? These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out 
among their descendants. Yeah. All right, so Amalek's memory would be blotted out, yeah. but the memory of complete victory over the flesh will be celebrated even in the millennium. Yeah. <laughs> every family, every province, every city, the text could not be more emphatic, and that's because they have just accomplished something prophesied 1,000 years earlier. This is Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Look, Adonai did blot out the memory of the physical Amalekites. And we know we will undergo the extermination of the spirit of Amalek. This is something that would be celebrated into the millennium according to Zechariah. And that's found in chapter 14, 16 through 17. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the feast of Sukkot. If any of the peoples of the earth Do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Almighty. They will have no reign. But guess what? We will celebrate because we're going to put it to death year after year. Let's pick up in verse 29. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. So we got introduced to Esther all the way back in chapter 2, verse 15. Uh... That verse, as well as this verse right here, are the only times that she is called daughter of Abihail, which means father's might. What an amazing name that is. Her introduction could be seen as a prophecy back in chapter 2, prophesying, much like calling Gideon a mighty warrior, guys. This verse, though, in chapter 9, verse 29, is the fulfillment Because her prophetic name now was seen as the genuine reality of her walk. Esther 6.10, Esther 8.7, Esther 9.29, Esther 9.31, and Esther 10.3. These verses all refer to Mordecai as Mordecai the Jew. In this book, he is a clear type of Messiah. And these are like five statements reminding you that Jesus also is the Jew. He is the first fruits of all that Adonai will accomplish in the Jewish people. It is true that we see Gentiles join Israel in this book, but that has not changed this story into anything other than what it actually is, a Jewish story through and through. We love the picture of Jesus and the Messianic body represented in Mordecai and Esther that display the prophetic name Abihail, or Father's Might. Verse 30. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Wow. So as we close this chapter, you should see the way in which Mordecai and Esther are acting as a singular entity. The decrees are the decrees of Mordecai and Esther. Their actions are unified 
And they are powerful. This is a picture of the messianic body that will exist at the time of Jesus' return. Chapter 10 is going to pick up with the theme, with a theme similar to 1 Corinthians 15. And it's going to show Xerxes, who is a representative of Adonai, as all in all. And it's going to be amazing. We can promise you that. But we'd like to point you to an obvious takeaway from this chapter from the BKC. As the original Jewish readers read this account, they would have been struck by the way God was sovereignly protecting them. Often, when they did not even know it. Many things in the book of Esther happened that were beyond anyone's control except that of God, whoever sees history. You hear in the sovereignty thing? And the book of Esther is filled with irony, with ways in which events turned out unexpectedly and in favor of God's people. Wow. Somebody say irony. Irony. On the subject of irony in our last few minutes, we came across something very interesting. We're not endorsing it. We're saying it's the kind of thing that will make you think deeply about the text. You're free to go and do your own research on the subject. But we certainly found it interesting. Esther made the statement, this day's edict, tomorrow also. Very strange sentence in English. Jews throughout history have seen this as a prophecy about the cyclical nature of the events in Esther that repeat continuously throughout history. I want to show you an example that is hard to ignore. If you've been in this church long enough, you've heard us talk about minuscule letters and majuscule letters. What you see on the left of the screen is the listing of Haman's ten sons. What is circled on the right-hand side of the screen is a Tav, a Shen, and a Zion. The Tav is the equivalent of 400 when you are writing a date in Hebrew. The Shen is the equivalent of a 300 when you are writing a date in Hebrew. And the Zion is the equivalent of a seven. In other words, those three letters that are minuscule, much smaller than the others, and there is no reason for it in the Hebrew language, and this manuscript is from hundreds of years ago, represent the year 707. In the last name of a son of Haman, there is another letter. It is in the majuscule, meaning that it is larger. We didn't circle it on the screen because I hate making slides. It is the letter Vav. Now, these manuscripts are hundreds of years old, and they have unique features in them, and there are many of them, some of which display this and some of which don't. When Hebrew-speaking people originally wrote dates, they used letters to write the dates. They often did not have to write the millennium that you were in because it's assumed that if you are reading something, you know what millennium we're talking about. But these three minuscule letters give you the year 707. The one majuscule letter gives you the millennium that we are in. Here is an explanation that we have on a slide. So let's talk about the Nuremberg trials coded in the Megillah. In a letter to the newspaper She'arim, 
April 12, 1967. Acharon Goldberger noted that the list of Haman's ten sons, Esther 9, 7 through 9, which you saw on that last slide in the Hebrew, they contain three letters that, according to tradition, are written in smaller script. You have the Tav, the Shin, and the Zion, whose numeric value in Gematria is 707. You do that by adding 400 plus 300 plus 7. This, he argued, is a hidden reference to the Jewish year 5707, with the Majuscule Vav included, during which the execution of the how many? Ten, Ten Nazi war criminals in Nuremberg took place. Oh, it gets better. So listen. So as noted on the slide earlier, there was only one letter in the majuscule, which would indicate the millennium as the one that was notated in the slide. This would mean that in the list of Haman's sons, three unique minuscule letters and one unique majuscule letter would give you the year 5707. And we can't emphasize enough how rare this is in the Hebrew script. It would be immediately apparent to anyone reading it. This is the year 5707 that 10 Nazis were hanged for war crimes following World War II. The crazy thing is, another crazy thing, is that the men would have been hung in the year prior if there had not been mysterious delays because of cries for amnesty for the Nazi officers. That's Who would ever think that cries for amnesty for Nazis could actually be a part of God's sovereign plan? But it delayed the trial from the year 5706 to being completed in 5707. Wow. And what could be even crazier than that is there, there, there were originally 11 men that were going to be hanged. But one of them actually committed suicide the night before, ensuring that only 10 men were hung on this date in 5707. Payton's going to show us a newspaper article. It's actually a domestic one from the New York Times on the day that these men were hanged. So this is from October 16, 1946. Goring ends life by poison. 10 others hanged in Nuremberg prison for Nazi war crimes, doomed men on gallows, pray for Germany. Gallows, huh? You can't make this up. (laughs) If none of these things move you, then consider the final words of the Nazi officer, Julius Stryker. We're preparing to read this and things that you want to bear in mind is people are not normally executed in gallows. Like the percentage of all of these events lining up is very interesting. But hear the words of this man that is a part of the tent. As the guard stopped him at the bottom of the steps for identification, formality, he uttered his piercing scream, Heil Hitler. The shriek sent a shiver down my back. This is a first-person accounting of what has happened. As he reached the platform, Stryker cried out, Now it goes to God. He was pushed the last two steps to the mortal spot between, beneath the hangman's rope. The rope was being held back against a wooden rail by the hangman. Stryker was swung suddenly to his face. The witnesses and glared at them. Suddenly he screamed, Purum Fest 1946. Wow. <laughs> so let's grab hold of this. 
23 men were on trial for the same thing. The others were shot by firing squad. One committed suicide the night before, and exactly 10 men were killed in the year 5707, and that unique date appears in some of the manuscripts regarding Haman's sons. And it appears hundreds of years before it occurred. And the last man, the only one who his last words were recorded, called it Purim Fest 1946. If that kind of thing interests you, you are going to love next week. It won't involve newspaper clippings. It will only be in the text. But the textual oddities that are within the book of Esther are amazing. As we close tonight, we obviously see Haman as a representative of Satan. This would mean that Haman's sons are like the commands that compete with the mitzvot of God. The whole chapter is pointing to the need to die to your evil inclination. And man, do we all look forward to seeing all competing influences adhered to a cross for the whole world to see. The actions of Mordecai and Esther are repeated and they're replicated in this chapter throughout the Persian Empire. We all look forward to building the body of Messiah until actions like theirs are replicated everywhere there are kingdom ambassadors. Mordecai and Esther are seen in this chapter as acting in Shalom, acting in Ehad, and acting as a singular entity. We all look forward to this kind of unity in our homes, in this church, and among the churches. There is one thing that we did not cover. And we're five minutes over, so I'm going to do it briefly. But it is worth hearing. Gentiles are viewed in chapter 8 of Esther and chapter 9 of Esther, joining with Israel as proselytes. This is even before the Purim Day battle. They're joining in advance of the victory. Now, those Gentiles had not experienced Acts 15 yet. There was no decision from the believing Jewish community that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised to participate in Israel. Do you know what that means? These Gentiles all had to be circumcised just to participate in the war alongside Israel. Since those Gentiles did this and did this before the victory, you have to ask yourself, you and I have been joined to Israel. We've done it after the great victory of the cross. And we've done it without the need to be physically circumcised. Can't we all say together that the very least that we owe Israel is the circumcision of our own hearts so that we can together win the battle with Amalek and arrive at Israel's national redemption? Yes! We hope you've enjoyed Esther 9. Church, stand to your feet with us. Sydney, would you put up Romans 8, 28?
Church, would you look at a verse like Romans 8, 28 now and say that we know. Somebody say, I know. I know. Somebody say, we know. We know. See, when you can say this with the veracity, with the truthfulness of what these men are presenting to us tonight, that all things, not the good things, not the things that you had planned, but in all things, God is working. If he can cause a manuscript to have minuscule and majuscule letters that define that we see thousands of years after the event, that is... Uh, incredibly moving for me personally, but I think I just want to remind you of a few things that these men said tonight. That we must have a staying power of our faith. That we know that all things work for the good. So that should impact us in our staying power of faith. To defeat the doubting of Amalek that's in our own hearts. That we want the men and women in this room to become more and more powerful. That you're able to defeat the internal Amalek as well as the external enemies. I think I have a new way to look at my own Nabal traits. I kept looking at the different versions of the ten sons of Haman and went, yeah, I resemble that too. There's another thing that's going to die in my life and I can see it on the screen tonight. We're going to be the kind of people that don't need to get out of the fight. They don't need to have God change the circumstances. We're going to be men and women who say, just give us more time. Just give us more time, and while we're at it, let us publicly display display those Haman-like, those sons of Haman, those Nabal traits that we have. Let's post it for everyone to see, because we can do this, and we're going to do it together because of the power of God. Amen. Let's begin to pray. And when we pray, we're going to pray in celebration and joy ahead of the battle. We know what God has given us. Mighty God, we thank you for your tools and instruments of war, for righteousness. But we thank you for arming us right now, for today, to go to war on our internal characters that have to die right now. But we thank you for making us a body, a group of men and women who are joined together in this fight. And Lord, I thank you for the victory that is coming today, tomorrow, and the next day. We love you, Jesus. 